Welcome to the last lap podcast. Welcome to the last lap podcast. Welcome everybody to the Last Lap Podcast, the only Formula One podcast that's... Yes folks, unfortunately for the first time and hopefully last time ever, it's just going to be me. Yes, you're stuck with me for the duration of this podcast. Unfortunately, Sean was not able to make it to the podcast this week and since we uh, missed out recording last week due to various other commitments... um, it's just me. Uh, we thought we'd rather get this one in very quickly, since Austria wasn't exactly the greatest race on Earth, uh, and get it in before the uh, British Grand Prix this weekend, uh, which we're very, very, very much looking forward to, um, and cover everything off that's been happening in Formula One, etc., etc., uh, so that we're ready and prepared for when Sean comes back next time to uh, review Silverstone and catch up on everything that uh, he may have missed in the meantime. So, as I stated... The Austrian Grand Prix was the last one out, so uh, let's take a look at what went on. Um, if it wasn't for penalties and people crashing into another, it probably would have been another dull race. So I guess we're kind of lucky for that. Um, it was better than Canada, uh, and that's not something you obviously get to say very often, because Canada is usually one of our favourite races. Um, but after the uh, snooze fest that uh, was Montreal, uh, you know, 33 and a third percent better, possibly. Uh, I don't know. Um, I certainly didn't fast forward quite as much as I did previously. Um, but to be fair, I still fast forwarded a portion in the middle when we all knew that nothing was uh, nothing was going to happen. Um, so first off, really, is the uh, the first lap incident between Kimi and Fernando. Uh, don't often see uh, cars being carried along as the uh, hat of another one. Um, so a b- pretty scary incident, really, even if, you know, kind of replays showed that maybe the car didn't come that close to uh, Kimmy. But it doesn't take very much, does it, realistically? If his hand had been knocked above the uh, level of the cockpit for any reason, he could have uh, suffered a nasty injury to his hands. But thankfully, uh, both drivers able to, to walk away from that shunt. Um, caused by the look of things of... Um, I think it was mentioned later on that uh, the engine map for starting, uh, which is obviously very uh, high on the torques to try and get them off the line as as quickly as possible, is maintained for something like 90 seconds after the start of the race. So uh, when Kimi came into that corner, he just put his foot down on the gas a little too hard. Back end started to swap, and unfortunately, uh, Fernando had already decided that he thought he could squeeze up the outside, was collected nicely, and, well, you saw the results. They ended up in the wall. Um, one of those things, it was, uh, it, you know, good to see them both get out of the car um, and Fernando to go and check on Kimi, make sure he was all right and that, you know, there was clearly no uh, animosity felt between the, the two of them. I guess it's just one of those things after spending so many times uh, battling on track in a Ferrari, but when something like this just kind of happens to you both, I guess you look at it and just go, well, could have been worse. Um, so, uh, you know, that was that. Uh, we lost Will Stevens a lap later, uh, which is probably not the biggest loss to a Grand Prix that there's ever been. But um, a shame for the uh, for Englishman who's been doing fairly well of late, although uh, I think uh, Roberto Mary's actually uh, finished ahead of him in the last couple of Grand Prix. Um, always difficult to tell um, with the manners exactly what's going on. And then after that, really, is a race kind of settled down until the, 
the uh, the pit stop phase really, and then it kind of all kicked off again. Carlos Sainz got a uh, penalty for speeding in the pit lane, um, which brought out the famous Martin Brundle. That one's usually a dead cert. Um, uh, and it was interesting because it was repeated later for Lewis Hamilton, who uh, looked like he might have been able to have gotten out and maybe challenged Nico Rosberg, but in his uh, in his enthusiasm to do so, uh, straight across the uh, pit exit sign, which is something that we haven't seen for a very, very long time. I haven't seen anybody really penalise that um, that badly for that for a while. I think the last one that really springs to mind, ironically, is uh, Nico Rosberg. I think it was, um, was it Bahrain? maybe, or Abu Dhabi, one of, one of the races, um, or was it Singapore? I can't remember, it was one of the races anyway, um, where Nico was driving for the Williams at the time and was leading the race and looking all good to uh, score a, a miraculous uh, win for the Williams team and unfortunately strayed over the uh, the safety car line, uh, not the safety car line, sorry, the exit line, and you know that, that did for his race and it really kind of did for this race now. Um, by the time it was all over, I, I think Lewis was more than aware that um, there was no way he was going to uh, g- because they know that he's not going to get the undercut on Nico there's no way he's going to be able to make up that time plus five seconds so th- the race was done then for for the lead at that point um, Sebastian Vettel had a poor pit stop um, losing him lots and lots of time um, and he ended up behind Felipe Massa uh, in the Williams uh, which led to some um, good chasing down action at the uh, end of the race but sadly no overtaking action, and I say sadly, not necessarily because I wanted the Ferrari to come first, but you know, we <laughs> at the end of the race we're sorely lacking in overtaking, as all the cars seem to be, you know, fuel normalised and tyre normalised, um, generally. Um, so when there is this kind of chasing down, it's the bit that you're hoping for that that's the bit where we'll see some, you know, good racy action. But it seems like, as happens most of the time, um, as we pointed out before, that. When you get to that stage of the race, um, you know, unless you start close enough, the chances of you having the rubber by the time you've caught up to somebody is one thing, and having enough rubber to be able to uh, breeze past them without getting stuck behind them and thus ruining your nice tyres is uh, nearly impossible. Especially in Austria, where the Williams was far, far more competitive than it has been at any races, and it probably wasn't a track that necessarily suited uh, what Ferrari do. Um... Uh, Valtteri Bottas, probably star of the race, I think, finishing in fourth um, after a uh, a bad set of um, uh, of calling. I've put him uh, right down to towards the back of the grid, so uh, a real good uh, result from uh, from him. Um, and then followed in uh, sixth place uh, by Nico Hulkenberg in the Force India, um, who had been saying all weekend that they thought that the car would be stronger here. Um, it's a, you know, it's not a high downforce circuit, lots of nice long straights um, that kind of suits the uh, basic, um, shall we say, Force India car. It's got its advantages and advantages are that it's, you know, it's never going to progress uh, massively highly in the technical aero department. But uh, where it can make up that is tra- tracks like Austria. Um, and, you know, he finished um, only... Uh, 11 seconds behind Valtteri Bottas and given that the relative speed of both of those cars I think that's a pretty solid result for uh, Nico in the Force India uh, Pastanado amazingly <laughs> given everything else that went on had a fairly quiet race uh, um, only tangling a little bit with uh, Max Verstappen in the uh, final moments but has to be said that was probably more Max's uh, fault for being a little bit too uh, a little bit too greedy about what he thinks he can and can't get away with um 
it comes to something when Pastor Maldonado is giving you a ticking off at the end of the race. So you know you've probably really done something a little bit naughty there. Um, but yeah, a good result for the Toro Rosso driver um, who finished ahead of um, both of the Red Bulls um, uh, and Sergio Perez in the Force India. And obviously the Toro Rosso is not necessarily a car with the top speed to its advantage. So I think that's a, a very good result for young Maxi there. Um, as I said, Sergio Perez in ninth. Uh, I think when you look at what Nico Hulkenberg did, it, realistically, it's not a great result for Sergio there to, to scrape into the, the, the minor points paying positions. Um, and I think as this season's going on, he seems to be drifting a little bit away from Nico in terms. He's had the odd moment here and there, but Nico's been much more consistent. And um, uh, and I think that was really Sergio's problem at McLaren, is, is that he had a, a few moments where he looked really good, a real sort of, you know, um, world beater in the making. And then... I don't know, maybe he's just not got that kind of focus or um, when he thinks that results are kind of set in stone, maybe he just doesn't push hard enough. I don't know. It's difficult to describe. I obviously don't know him personally. I've not sat inside his brain whilst he's been driving a Formula One car. I, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but it seems odd that um, there was that vast difference between the two. And I don't remember there being anything to really cause that during the race um, other than the fact that Nico qualified much better than him. but then again that is a story in itself uh, Danny Rick finished uh, in 10th place really dragging that Red Bull to uh, what he eventually said was probably the best result that they could have uh, hoped for that's a that's a sad thing to say at your home track really isn't it uh, with the millions invested in it by the uh, the parent company to uh, give them their own Grand Prix in, in essence and uh, yeah 10th place is as good as we could do um, it seems a bit odd really that um, you know if we if we look at uh, really what's wrong with the Red Bull you know it's the Renault engine it's not blowing up anymore but there's obviously something still functionally poor about what it's doing in the Red Bull especially compared to the Toro Rosso where they don't seem to be having you know quite the much of the same issues that they're they're in their own position, if you follow what I'm saying here, which is that uh, Toro Rosso can have an expectation, which is probably minor points positions in most races, not all races, but most races, a, a chance of racing for those. Um, uh, and they're doing that, you know, consistently and successfully. The um, parent team, the bigger team, uh, can't seem to do that. And you'd think that with the resources possibly being thrown at it, that they'd be able to, you know, if it's a drivability thing, surely they've got to be able to engine map their way out of that. Surely they can test those kind of things on a dynamo with a, you know, um, with somebody tapping the pedal. It doesn't have to be in a car for road testing, I, I would have thought anyway. Um, so it seems odd that if, if it's just down to that, but the actual Renault engine is at least good enough in a Toro Rosso to get it to, you know, sixth or seventh, uh, or seventh or eighth, I should probably really say. Um, why the rebel can't do any more than that, and I, I find I would be surprised if the functional design of the car is so bad that it puts it that far behind a Toro Rosso. It doesn't really, again, doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, You're listening to the Last Lap Podcast. The rebel team have been fairly quiet recently about changes to this and changes to that, so it's difficult to to know really where they feel that the you know, the blame is lying. We had various reports stating that Ferrari might have actually given them a, an engine in um, 2017, I think. I think they were saying 2016 wasn't um, possible. But uh, again, um, 
that whole, you know, we're going to get rid of Renault, Renault are going to buy a team, that all seems to have died down a little bit. Um, there are reports that uh, Renault are looking to buy a full-time Formula E team, so that might well kind of take over from their need to, you know, uh, have a Formula One team. If they can build a, a Formula E team that's uh, particularly dominant, then that probably suits them all around, really, with sort of hybrid technology being a more road car-based idea. Uh, they're not a super sports car designer, so, you know, pure grunt and horsepower isn't um, a selling point for your average Renault. No, it's definitely not, actually. Um, yes, your Renault Espace doesn't need to have uh, 560 brake horsepower in it. Although that would be quite interesting for the school run, I guess. Um, so Formula E is probably a bit of, a better fit for uh, a road car engine manufacturer than uh, Formula One is, in which it's going to probably stay uh, hybrid for a reasonable long time because, as has been shown, you know the hybrid system has got a fair bit of bad press from the Formula One fans uh, and going any further into that, dropping more and more of the petrol engine, the combustion side of it is probably not going to fly. Although, you know, when did Formula One ever listen to us? So they'll um, they'll probably all be solar powered by uh, 2017. You heard it here first. Um, <laughs> back to Austria. Uh, Felipe Nasr rounded out uh, 11th place in the Sauber. Um I must say, uh, I think, um, you know, he showed that, you know, maybe GP2 gets a bit of a, I don't know how should we put this, a bit of a hard reputation for poor drivers who only, whose only way of defending is chopping in front of people or chopping into people. Um, but uh, this race, you know, he, he pulled off some really good defensive driving, um, you know, keeping keeping drivers in much better cars uh, behind him during the start of the race and yes okay eventually he got passed in all of got passed by all of them but he's in a sauber what else is going to happen um i you know i rather like fred nasser i didn't like him in gp2 i didn't think he had the um what's the nice way to put it the coners to make the step up to formula 1 you know he was um rather put in his place by Julian Palmer and Stoffel van Dorn in his last GP2 season, um, where, you know, it looked like he was going to be the challenger to uh, Palmer, but, uh, well, Stoffel van Dorn fairly easily beat him into second place in the end, you know, and Julian Palmer obviously wandered off with the championship. Um, it, it didn't give me good omens for him. He didn't look like he maybe he was a purebred racer who, you know, maybe he was, you know, good. Got to be good to get that far in any racing series, but I wondered if he had it. And, well, I think maybe he does. Um, maybe we've been a little unkind on him just because he's bringing the Banco de Brazil bucks uh, with him and getting the cars painted in the, in his livery. But um, I think he's been the standout driver for Sauber, certainly, um, and one of the standout rookies this this year. I, I would probably rate him better than Max Verstappen. He just doesn't, he doesn't make the same silly mistakes that Verstappen does. Um and has been doing, although, you know, Mustafa is, you know, still in nappies, comparatively. Um, as was pointed out that um, Stoffel van Dorn, the leader, current leader of GP2, he's uh, about six years older than <laughs> and, um, Max Verstappen. Seems very, very strange um, how, <laughs> when you look at it like that. Um, so, yeah, you know, Felipe Nezer is a... I think he's as good a rookie as certainly at least as Carlos Sainz, who I I think um, has probably had 
a much higher degree of bad luck than Max Verstappen has. And, well, you know, I don't want to put the Tim 4 hat on, uh, only some 20 minutes into the uh, into the podcast, but you wouldn't be surprised, would you, if Red Bull rather fancied that um, they were better betting on Max Verstappen, who's getting all the headlines, than for uh, Carlos Sainz Jr., who is probably the better driver, but is not, you know, not doing anything spectacular, or is not so young that anything he does magically grabs a headline. Uh, and I think that would be a shame, um, because I think the bloke's super talented, um, uh, and you know, clearly he's had to wait a very long time to get that drive. Um, you know, he nearly lost it uh, this season. I was very pleased when he got it um, after waiting for so long for it. So. Um, yeah, you know, probably um, probably not NASA's best race, but he certainly showed off some skills. Uh, Daniel Kivat ended up 12th. Uh, I can't remember if he had a problem or not off the top of my head. Um, but um, no, I can't remember at all. It's that long ago. Never mind. Uh, Marcus Ericsson ended up two laps down in the Sauber, but I know he definitely did have a problem during the race, um, so that's uh, not that surprising. And Roberto Meri ended up in last but 14th place. Um, DNFs. Uh, Grosjean, I can't remember what happened. Um, did he get in an accident? Or maybe he did. Did he tangle with somebody, possibly? Uh, well, somebody can set me right on that one if you'd like to tweet us after the show uh, and let me know. Uh, Carlos Sainz, after um, doing so well, uh, lost all his power. Um, Jensen's engine gave up uh, midway through the... Well, not even midway through the race, fairly early on in the race. Uh, as I said, Will Stevens retired uh, two laps in and uh, Fernando and Kimi both went out on uh, the first lap. You're listening to The Last Lap Podcast. The home of F1 Banter. So if I'm if I'm reviewing this race, um, what I would say is that I think the Austrian track is a very good track. Um, it, it's got the right mixture of stuff without it being that horrible tilt design thing where sector one fast, sector two slow, sector three medium, or whatever combination of those he decides to throw in a track where it seems um, he can't design a track that doesn't contain. Um, sectors that are of a specific type um you know austin probably being the exception um and it's because it's an old short track and i think that's what maybe is being missed in these new formula one tracks which all seem to be very long and twisting dryly is that that doesn't necessarily make for a good exciting race it, it would be better to have six exciting corners than it is to have 28 really crap ones um, and unfortunately, it does seems to be the latter appears to be the prevalence in design uh, for um, for all these new tracks. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm I am a fan of Austria in general. I was not a fan of this race particularly. Um, I don't think, um, and I'm sure there's people who will be spitting feathers when I say this. I don't think Lewis would have beaten Nico. Um, and there's been certainly races this season where the opposite has been true, where I think Nico was never in the, uh, wasn't really playing the same game as uh, Lewis has been. Um, and it just seems to have turned around a little bit. You know, he's he seems to have worked out what he was doing wrong, which I think was that he was getting qualifying all wrong. Um, 
and now he seems to be understanding what he's got to do and understanding perhaps um, that if he doesn't do that in the race, uh, there's no comeback. Uh, so he's now pushing in the right areas and well you, you know we know Lewis he, he's uh, capable of pushing whenever he really wants to so uh, I guess he hasn't got very much to change his game from because he's probably doing all the right things already so you know that's not a criticism per se uh, but you know if, if Nico has talents that um, Lewis doesn't and th- you know again that, that works backwards and forwards you know there's things that Lewis has that, that Nico simply doesn't um, if Lico can up something so that he's competitive with something that uh, Lewis has been doing, i.e. qualifying pace or uh, maintaining good qualifying uh, results, then um, he's still got the things that Lewis doesn't have, whereas you know Lewis is losing out something there. Uh, again, the, the, the same can work the other way. Um, you know, uh, if, if Lewis can pick up something that Nico's doing and turn it into his thing, then it's, a, you know, it's one less thing that, that Nico has in his bag of tricks. But at the moment, it seems... It seems or feels like you know Nico is probably um, finding some you know uh, some speed he either didn't think he had or was holding back on because he thought it was better to, um, and now he's releasing it and and the rewards seem to be coming to him, uh, ten points separating the in the championship, um, and that's good news in a way because the worst thing that we could have had is Lewis winning the last three three races and being uh, sixty points ahead by you know mid midway through the season it would be even worse than the results have been, I think, or the racing has been. Uh, so it, it's something that there is a, a challenge going on. Um, I'll re- reiterate my point of view that uh, the things that I dislike about Lewis do not preclude me from thinking that if he won the world champion, uh, if he won the world champion, if he won the world championship even, um, that you know he, he would be fully deserving of that and he would do it because he's an incredibly talented driver. Uh, and I would say the same thing for Nico. I, I think it's... Uh, it's a case that you know. Still, in the end, the best driver probably wins it. On the end, um, you know, it would be a shame if it's close enough that the Monaco result is what decides it. You know, if the the points difference goes and says, well, if Monaco had gone the right way, then Lewis would have won, because uh, that will always overshadow it, and that would be a, a shame. Because I think even you know, even without that standing, these are the kind of things that that happen in a season. You know. Nico had, you know, somebody putting uh, whatever was it, wash, washing up liquid or something in his steering column through one of the races last season. Um, and without that, he'd have been that much closer to Lewis. Who knows? You know, you can only judge it on the results that people cross the the um, finish line in uh, and trying to analyse it much more than that and saying, well, if only this had happened or only this as well, it didn't. Um, and all of those those results go together to make a championship. The, the good and the bad, the things where... You know, it goes for your guy or it doesn't go for your guy. Sometimes it's about saying, you know, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. And at the moment, it's crumbling a little bit for Lewis. Silverstone's a good track for him. Um, if there's something to motivate him and make him do well, then Silverstone is going to be what it is. And he'll he'll come back fighting harder because uh, he wants to do well here. Uh, you know, he's, you know, um, he certainly... Is seen as the British guy, and I think he takes that to heart. I don't think he is the darling of uh, British F1 fans, you know, by default. Uh, certainly not for me. You know, I'm uh, uh, much happier for Jensen to do better than Lewis. That's my personal preference. But um, you know, I, I appreciate that Lewis is an incredibly talented British driver in the mould of other uh, talented British drivers, uh, and I'm happy to see him have success uh, because of his talent so 
Um, it will be it will be something for him to strive to to, to do, I think, and, and and win well at the British Grand Prix to really uh, sort of push him towards getting out of the European season with maybe a you know a bit more of a lead uh, than he has now, um, rather than. Because if you think about last season, really he 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 was it was very close up to Spa, and then after Spa, things went his way. And um, although that part of that was down to how the team reacted to what happened at Spa, I think he can generate if he if he, you know, if he's consistent in his application and uh, and putting in the results, he can do that again. He can push the team back towards him. I think. Um, whereas at the moment, I think the team's suddenly a bit like, oh, uh, well, you know, maybe we, maybe we need to be a bit more careful about, you know, what we do with with Nico because, you know, who knows what could happen? Lewis could DNF for three three races in a row, and then, um, you know, we we haven't given Nico enough backing to be able to make his challenge credible. Um, so that's a that's a thing. Um, uh, back to Austria. Um, Maurizio Riva-Benny had been saying that uh, you know Ferrari had all of these updates. They're going to be much that much closer to Mercedes and all the other bits and pieces. But you know, uh, despite the pit stop, there was no way Vettel was catching up to the Mercedes. Uh, just no way. Um, they are as far behind now as at the start of the season as makes no difference. I'm sure that they have caught up tenths um, because they've got much more to make up than the Mercedes do. Uh, you know, law of diminishing returns tells you that the Ferrari can make bigger gains than the Mercedes can, probably. Um, so, you know, if we if we look at it, you know, they're still finishing thirty odd seconds behind uh, the Mercedes most uh, most races. Um, what's it? What does it tell you about um, what Ferrari are achieving? Well, I'm, I'm sure that they're still trying to achieve uh, I'm sure that they're uh, out there doing all they can to make the car go faster um, and I don't disbelieve that uh, Arriva Benny is you know, improving the car or is in charge of making improvements to the car uh, I just don't think they are actually happening in a way that's really tangible um, and that's a shame for the championship because um, you know as everybody has unfortunately been saying it's uh, uh, a season of dominance for Mercedes again which means we're going to have um uh, essentially three seasons of single team dominance um had a big debate with somebody on this uh, online uh i say debate the other person was too stupid to really form an opinion um hi stuart um but uh realistically there is a difference between success and dominance um success means <clears throat> you end up winning titles but the challenge that you receive uh from the other teams makes the season interesting so you know uh, most of the seasons when uh, McLaren won in a row and they won the titles back to back, they were challenged very hard by their teams. There was only one season where they had a, a, a triple point margin in the Constructors' Championship, which can pretty much give you an idea of uh, how close the season was in terms of the racing when other teams are picking up enough points to make the margin small. Uh, and that was, you know, true for 50% of Red Bull's uh, wins. You know, we, we think of it being as pure dominance, um, but. Um, it was very, very close in the first and third season. It was really only the second and third seasons where they absolutely blitzed uh, the championship and it was, um, uh, you know, not a massively uh, entertaining set of seasons to watch. 
Um, but the problem is, is that um, 2013 and 2014 have both been dominant seasons. Well, the first one for Red Bull, and then last season for uh, Mercedes. It's going to go the same way this is. So we've had three seasons, or we will have had three years. It's worth remembering that that's three years where most fans are turning up to watch races where the result is between two people uh, in the same team. And that result is pretty much decided by who gets to the first corner first, bar any other incidents in the race, you know, bar uh, acts of God almost. And and that's the problem. Um, it, it's not that Mercedes winning is bad as opposed to McLaren winning or Ferrari winning or Lotus winning. It's not a case that um, people want Mercedes punished for doing so well because hell they've done the best job they've absolutely kicked ass they've built the best car they shouldn't be penalized for doing that um but there's clearly something going on that means the other teams just you know they can't catch up and that seems wrong because you know it, it's always been a case that in formula one teams can develop and, and catch up you know within a season um and it doesn't seem to happen anymore. We're so used now to teams saying, we've given up on this year's car, we're concentrating everything for next year. It happens all the time, and I think we forget that um, th that means teams are giving up on a season at, at some point in it. That's bad for the sport. That's bad that teams feel that um, they can't develop a car well enough on a regular basis to compete. That's bad news for any sport. Can you imagine if in the Premier League, uh, Chelsea won the first 20 games of the season and all the other teams said, oh, we're going to put out reserve squads for the rest of the season now because nobody's going to beat Chelsea this year. So we don't see if there's any point in letting our senior players get injured. So sod it. <laughs> you, you know, you'd have a riot. Um, but in Formula One, we kind of see that as normal, that you know, people go, ah, not bothering now. And we go, okay, yeah, sensible strategic decision. And I guess sometimes it is. You know, when you're in sixth place in the championship with no hope of doing it and what you want to do is be challenged for the champion. Yeah, OK, I can see that there is, you know, a, a call for it. But it seems to happen so often with so many teams that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't ring true like, like it's a good decision for the sport, even if it's a good decision for the teams. You're listening to The Last Lap Podcast. The home of F1 banter. With Andy and Sean at www.lastlappodcast.co.uk uh, So that's Austria. Uh, we're looking forward to Silverstone next week with the British Grand Prix. Um, good track. Um, doesn't necessarily promote tons of overtaking, um, but it's a classic track and the uh, atmosphere there is almost tangible it does it does you know raise the race up a little bit from um you know necessarily not always being the greatest overtaking spectacle but um it has its moments it has places where that that can happen and i think it's uh, a good track for the drivers the drivers enjoy it um so you know um hopefully it will it will lift everybody's spirits somewhat i think from from this one hopefully um certainly only european races can do that for the majority of f1 fans you know we're not going to go to russia and have our spirits lifted 
uh, we're not going to go to Singapore uh, and be entertained by the racing. These are things that happen during the season and there are results from them, but the fans don't get anything out of it and therefore um, what you're left with is just races, or not even races, just, you know, just results. Uh, and nobody's ever lifted by results apart from the fans of the team that win. And that's going to be Mercedes. <laughs> so 10% of the Formula One audience is probably going to be very happy with all of these races. And the rest are going to be like, well, you know, the best I could hope for my driver was third. Hmm. Well, <laughs> you know, Fernando Alonso ditched Ferrari for uh, that exact reason. And... I can kind of understand why fans might feel like ditching Formula One when uh, that seems to be the case for, as I said, several years in a row. Um, but let, let's see if uh, Silverstone can can bring us some joy back and um, you know give us uh, uh, a race to remember after a couple of you know uh, also rans no maybe rans possibly but yeah a better way of saying that. So let's cover a couple of things going on in the Formula One news. The Final Lap Podcast News. So Richard Branson has been out in the press stating that Formula E could overtake Formula One. Um, That's been, you know fairly dismissed by people in Formula One uh, I think they should be very careful about being that dismissive um, if you were following Twitter at all and you follow accounts that cover Formula E as well as Formula One um, there was a lot of buzz about the final race in London um, the race itself um, and how it all panned out you don't you know when was the last time you really saw that much clamour about the result of the race that wasn't Monaco because it was controversial. Um, I, I'd like there to be lots of clamour uh, around the world that a Formula race, were, Formula One race was as close as this one was and contained the amount of action that this one did. Um, but uh, both Christian Horner and Jensen Button have, um, well, difficult to say sort of kind of poo-pooed because it's a bit harsh, but... Um, Christian Horner said that um, I think four or five years from now. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, so that was uh, Richard Branson said in four or five years from now, you find Formula E overtaking Formula One in terms of number of people. Um, Christian Horner said Formula E's done well to get where they are, but you can't compare it in the same sentence as F1. It's positioned differently to Formula One. The cars look slow. Well, I think that's wrong for a start, Christian. Cars don't look slow. They don't look as fast as Formula One cars, but they're not as fast as Formula One cars. However, what they are is technologically superior to a Formula One car, uh, despite the fact that the batteries don't last a full race. You know, a Formula E car is, you know, um, a much bigger feat of engineering than a, uh, than a Formula One car, realistically. Uh, and it's certainly going to be that after this year, when the sort of homogenization of the cars uh, is reduced and the teams start being able to design it, um, you'll have much more interesting looking cars as well um, and greater diversity on the track, which only helps the show. Um, I think it's silly to suggest that um, Formula E can't be uh, a competitor to F1. If the racing's good, people will go to it. You know, uh, trying to pretend that it, you know, oh, it's it's as good as GP3. Well, you know, 
There's plenty of people starting to turn to GP3 and GP2 when they want to see lots of cars overtaking and action on the track. So don't be, you know, it, it's very short-sighted um, to suggest that it can't complete. But um, that said, um, overtaking, I think, is a different thing. I think what it can be is that there will become a time probably when if there is a Formula 1 and a Formula E race on at the same time, you'll see a, a big draw of people going to the Formula E race than the Formula 1 race. Obviously, Formula 1 diehard fans will stick with it. That's fine. No problems there. Um, and there's probably a bigger audience for that. But this is the first season for Formula E, and it's already kind of making headlines above Formula 1. So uh, I think dismissing it this, um, this early on, you know... Uh, yeah, I think you're wish, wish, wishing that it stays that way rather than necessarily uh, being completely sure that uh, it's definitely going to be that. Um, Daniel Ricciardo has been um, reported uh, as being a target for uh, Ferrari to replace Kimi Raikkonen. Um, very interesting there, really. Um there were lots of reports that Bottas was uh, already in a pre-contract agreement with them. Um, I think both drivers would be a good fit. Replacing Raikkonen with uh, Bottas obviously keeps the finished connection there, which will make a lot of people happy. Uh, but Daniel Ricciardo is probably the most popular driver for the neutrals. Uh, I don't think anybody wishes him ill. Um, I guess you'd have to find out what Sebastian thinks of him as a teammate. Um, it's difficult to tell because obviously Sebastian was primed to leave Red Bull in a terrible season when he was getting beaten by Daniel Ricciardo. I think people infer from that that Sebastian wouldn't want him as a teammate, but um, I don't know if he'd want Bottas as a teammate either, particularly. Um, and at least he knows Daniel Ricciardo in some way personally, so um, it might be you know. Um, It might be more of a better fit to have somebody that uh, he has good working knowledge of uh, rather than uh, somebody who might end up with a bit of a, well, not frosty relationship, but you just, you don't know whether those two will mesh. And I guess Sebastian will have an idea of whether he can mesh with Daniel uh, before. Um, Force India is looking to run their B-spec car. That's that's such a weird terminology, isn't it? B-spec car. Makes me sound like the worst the rubbish spec car, the A spec car is the one that you should want to be running. But realistically, this is their proper 2015 Challenger. Uh, the fact that it's taken till Silverstone to get it out, I think, tells you everything that you need to know about Force India's season. And, uh, well, it, it will be very interesting to see whether it really brings any big dividends. Because I think if it doesn't, that's the end of their season. Um, if it isn't a big step forward for them uh, and, and pushing them closer to be able to um, be the team behind... Um, Williams and Ferrari, which is essentially where they would need to get back to being, because that's where they were, um, then their season is going to be probably, the longer it goes on, more of fighting Sauber's um, and watching the Lotus and Toro Rosso go by, um, and maybe even the McLaren if they uh, ever get their act together. Um, So... You know, it's yet to be seen. I can't make a prediction on it. Wait until it goes. The uh, interesting cheese grater knows that they uh, <laughs> they had in testing. I wonder if that will make an appearance. Uh, I can't quite see how having uh, more nose is aerodynamically better than less nose. Doesn't seem to make sense. 
even if it funnels air in a particular way, you're adding drag that doesn't exist on cars that don't use it. So, uh, well, that's a thing. <laughs> um, if I was an aerodynamicist, I would be working in Formula One and probably not doing this podcast. So that would probably be better for everyone, wouldn't it? No. <laughs> um, Lewis Hamilton has bemoaned the trophies in Formula One, and this is something I absolutely agree with him on. Um, most of the most of the ones this season, have, most of the trophies that you see these days um, either tend to be horrible sponsory type ones or um, really strange abject things. I, I'd like to see trophies return. I think it would be nice if there was actual silverware in your uh, trophy cabinet and not um, strange uh, postmodern designs. Um, and I also think the ones that are shaped like the race layout are pretty, pretty lazy, really. Do you know what I mean? Um, build yourself a nice, a nice trophy like the uh, the British one, and um, and go with that. So the last thing I want to cover, and to kind of round out uh, the show, will be that um, the results of the um, GPDA fan survey have uh, dropped in our laps. Um, very interesting reading um some seemingly uh uh which are contradictory maybe a little when you uh look at them that way but um a very interesting read i think um a lot of this has to be taken with salt because there's um some things which are not really mentioned and um i think you've got to um understand that they've presented the results of some things in a particular way, um, which might be more interesting if you could know what the full level of results for. I, I have tweeted um, Alex Verts and asked him if I can have a CSV file full of the actual results, since uh, my job actually entails that I work with um, business intelligence, which is uh, data reporting. So um, I actually could take a look at that and run it through and actually generate my own reports, which I think would be actually quite interesting if I could get hold of them. But uh, we'll, we'll see if Mr. Verts is uh, at home to those ideas. Uh, and you may well be seeing a, an entire podcast dedicated to statistics of a survey. Oh, dear. Um, maybe maybe we'll just try and put it up as an article on the website instead. Uh, so in the end, uh, 215,000 fans took part from 194 countries. Uh, in 15 languages, uh, there were 15,000 uh, retweets of the uh, the survey's original uh, tweet with all the links in it. Um, I don't know whether that's a particularly um, good or bad number, really. Um, Forward One has, you know, a, a good social media presence, but it's maybe not the greatest, so it may not be that surprising that... Um, people are perhaps picking up links from things like Motorsport Magazine rather than picking up from the Twitter feed of uh, the GPDA or the retweets from um, other sources. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's a good start, but I think it, it highlights something that um, I'll talk about in general um, when we go through the results. Uh, so the top 10 countries uh, for, and I'm assuming this must be by respondents, um, the UK came first. Uh, France came in second, rather interestingly. Uh, the USA in third. Um, Austria and Germany fourth and fifth. The Dutch in sixth. Uh, Australia in seventh. Japan eighth. Italy ninth. And Brazil tenth. Now, 
what's the interesting thing that we note from that? Well, firstly, it's that um, only three countries out of the top ten were outside of uh, Europe. Uh, sorry, four even. Um, the United States, Australia, Japan and Brazil. Um, and what you'll note as well is that two of the European countries in the top ten do not have a Grand Prix race. So we're spending millions of pounds or... I should say Bernie is making millions of pounds, taking the sports to Bahrain, Abu Dhabi, Singapore, Azerbaijan, Russia. Um, but none of those countries have a, a big population of people who care enough about the sport to want to fill in a big survey about it. And that, to me, should be the biggest sign that we ain't doing it right. <laughs> All right? We are um, not um, taking the races to new places permanently is not a sensible idea we need to invest in the places where there are fans that we need to keep and nurture and then we need to push out to new places on rotation you, you need to do Azerbaijan every other year or every three years or or do something that means that when the race does go there um, it's important and people want to go and see it and then if you build up enough of, enough of a fan base there and it sticks um, and people go you know, once every three years and there's a big clamour for it, then you can see about putting it onto the, the calendar permanently and see if it sticks. But just chucking a race in the middle of the desert somewhere, you know, who wants to go? Well, you know, it's not the local population, is it? It's the people who have to travel from Europe uh, and the rich and wealthy in that particular country. Well, there you go. Um, I think that probably uh, answers all the questions that Bernie should realise about why what he's doing and the places he's taking Formula One is not working in generating an audience. You're listening to the Last Lap Podcast. F1 for fans by fans. Um, half of Formula One fans are between 25 and 44, and I thought that was a bit of a weird way to break that down because um, that means half of them weren't. So, what? How much is that a breakdown? Of the other half, are more of them younger than 25 or older than 44? Actually, that's what I'd like to know. I'd like to know if the Formula One audience is actually aging or are we actually bringing in, uh, you know, uh, uh, new fans all the time. Um, average age of a fan is 37, so that's good. That uh, keeps me feeling a little bit younger. Not much, but uh, <laughs> a little bit. Um, and over three quarters have been supporting Formula One for 10 years. And that doesn't surprise me either because I don't think there are very many um, fly-by-night fans, but... Um, I can't remember what the question was, so I don't know whether there was one higher than 10 years or not. Um, that um, the only a quarter are new fans should be a worry, though. Um, one in four described F1 as their favourite sport and follow it most closely. Well, again, that's not surprising. You're putting out a survey that... Um, is only going to be seen and responded to by Formula One fans. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this needed more explanation as far as I'm concerned. But fans are also interested in the World Endurance Championship. Well, again, A, that's that's not a quantifiable answer. Um, interested in doesn't tell you how interested they're in. I'm interested in the World Endurance Championships. I don't watch them. Um and I want to know what the level of interest in other sports is from the fans. I'd like to know how much they're interested in Formula E or um, uh, touring cars or all of those bits and pieces. 
Um, over half watch at least twelve races a season. Again, um, that doesn't that doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, it surprises me more that there are people who um, don't watch every single race of a season, um, unless they're saying, you know, um, you know, sometimes I miss them or uh, sometimes I don't bother going out and uh, recording them or I miss them fairly often because of work or something like that. Um, the fans all agree that between 12 and 3 is the best time to watch Formula 1 and it is it's perfect for the uh, for the late afternoon um, it wouldn't work during prime time and it won't work being early on in the afternoon after lunch actually is is perfect 90% uh, of us watch on television again that's highly unsurprising but 45% watch online um, whether that's a case of 45% you know occasionally occasionally watch online um, or it's a case that um, 45% occasionally catch up on something like SkyGo or or some other service uh, such as that uh, 30% watch on demand um, so I guess that's downloading a program uh, like a highlights program afterwards um, don't really understand what on demand is if you aren't watching it live. Um, Twitter is the uh, biggest social media platform for Formula One, which again is not surprising. It's um, it's an easy way for people to get into and follow the sport. Um, I think if you wonder why Facebook isn't that, it's because to get into that level where you want to discuss it, you've got to. Um, be really quite passionate about it it's the next level up from twitter so um, your casual fans are going to follow lewis or jensen on twitter and you know maybe a team or something like that that they're interested in and, and other things um whereas you've got to really want to talk to people about formula one to be in a facebook group or be on an online forum or something like that uh, most people get their news from the internet well duh uh, and 50 percent don't watch races live uh, since broadcast moved to paid television Mm, it's not surprising really um, not everybody is willing to pay for television that they once previously got free um, and I wonder how many people responded to that question because they say I record the races I never watch them live maybe um, only a third of, pe third of people support uh, more than one team or driver um, I was kind of surprised I thought that might be not quite that high but I, I suppose probably if you say support that means the team that you really want to win and yeah there's probably only one team or driver that you really want to win uh less than 10 percent follow um one team alone um which kind of um kind of doesn't really make sense with the previous stat really um oh no sorry a third of, a third of you support more than one team or driver and less than 10 percent follow one team that does surprise me because i would think that people would have a favorite but the question, as far as I remember, allowed you to pick three answers. And I think the point is is that people will say, yes, I am a McLaren fan, but I'm quite, I quite like Williams and I quite like Lotus. So they tick all three. It, you know, it's not necessarily, I think the answer can be skewed in that people are quite happy to say, yes, uh, I follow all three of these teams. But if you ask me which team was my favourite, it's this one. Um, so there you go. 80% um, don't follow a particular driver and that doesn't surprise me either Formula 1 is not really a sport where drivers have longevity it's teams um, it seems drivers are around for a bit longer now than they used to be um, probably because they're staying alive a little bit longer but um, 
still, um, you know, it, it's funny that only 10% of people follow one team, but um, 80% don't follow a particular driver. So I, I don't understand what they don't do anything or they're just everybody supports lots of teams. I don't believe that. Ferrari is the most top popular team ahead of McLaren and Williams. Not really that surprising. Um, although interesting given that um, Italy wasn't in the top five uh, respondents uh, to the thing. So it obviously shows that the uh, Tifosi are a worldwide organisation. Again, not surprising. Um, uh, and I don't doubt the validity of that. It's just interesting. Uh, Favourite drivers. Kimi Raikkonen, Fernando Alonso and Jensen Button. It doesn't take a... Um, rocket scientist to really see what that means and it means that that (laughs) what we're after is good drivers um who do things on track that we admire it's not about personality because kimmy well he doesn't say anything he's you you admire him because he's um he's got that don't care attitude alonso has a particular uh, uh, way of being and so does jensen button they are characters um and you can't really say that about a lot of the current crop of Formula One drivers. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that the older drivers with a little bit of something behind them um, attract the biggest interest from the Formula One audience. Now, this is where I start to get a little bit annoyed with the Formula One populace. Um, they ranked the uh, best looking cars um, and everybody said that the 2000s were the best looking cars. Um, you weirdos. It's Surely the 60s, 70s and 80s produced the most amazing looking cars. And even the 50s cars look really cool. Um, the 90s and onwards, I think they all look pretty much much the same, really. And uh, I, there were a lot of really ugly cars in the 2000s. But there you go. Um, strange. 32% thought the 2000s contained the best looking Formula 1 cars. Um, you won't be surprised necessarily with the top three drivers all time. Senna, Schumacher and Prost. Um, I, I think... Alan Prost gets third because um, of the Senna documentary has rather brought him back to the attention of younger fans who I think probably would have forgotten about him in the way that, you know, Nicky Lauda probably wouldn't be in so many people's minds these days if it wasn't for A, he was all over TV and B, there's the movie. And, and, and uh, I think James Hunt would be the same. I think there's a lot of people who would not remember single world champion in the 70s, James Hunt, if it wasn't for... Uh, rush uh, and that bringing that to people's attention um it's a shame not to see drivers like sterling moss um jackie stewart jim clark fangio um, ascari but one thing formula one doesn't do very well actually is um advertise how good a sport it's been for a very long time um it, it very much kind of dumps the old drivers in favor of the new we're not doing ourselves any favour of making Formula 1 seem like the pinnacle of motorsport if we forget all the things that have happened to make it so. Uh, Less than 10% feel that F1 is healthier now than it was five years ago. Uh, I've explained why that is my whole success versus dominance thing. Um, 88% of say that F1 needs to feature the best uh, drivers. 45% think that F1 does feature the best drivers. So 55% of us think that F1 doesn't have the best drivers in it. That's worrying. Uh, and 85% think that F1 needs to recruit new fans. And if we're saying that the average fan is 37, they're not wrong, are they, really? Um, so, um, things that people thought Formula 1 needed to do. Formula 1 needs to be more competitive. Again, 
dominance versus success. If the racing is interesting, success doesn't have to prevent people getting into the sport. Um, dominance will, where the results are predictable, where it's between two team uh, two teammates for a whole entire season, uh, and it's been sorted by the first corner. Bang, there is no competition. It's also rounds. It's your your best runner up is the best that you can do. That is not good for the sport. Uh, Formula One needs to do more to attract and retain new fans, and it does because Formula One treats its fans like uh, a cash cow at the moment. They think that Formula One fans are dedicated and they can pretty much do what they want and Formula One fans will go along. Well, that might be the case, you know? It might well be the case that we're all so stupidly addicted to this sport that regardless if um, Bernie made all of the tracks in sub-Saharan Africa, um, we, we'd all still watch and all still probably go and shrivel up and die in the heat. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you can ignore uh, what the fans say or that they aren't important or that getting and appealing to new fans in new ways isn't important either. Um, this was a very interesting... Formula One's business interests are now too important, 77%. Uh, so, you know, um, nearly um, nearly two-thirds... Uh, no, over two-thirds, sorry, are really of, of respondents feel that, you know... It's about the money, and do you know who's to blame for that? And it is Bernie, because Bernie keeps on doing things that um, bring him and CVC lots of money, like taking races to places they don't want to go, dropping older tracks because um, he refuses to lower the prices in a way that makes the races manageable for them, despite the fact that the sport would be better off for being there. Um, uh, and so people just see him um, and CVC uh, as people who don't give a crap about the f- the sport they compare about they care about the shareholders and their bottom line. Uh, still, sixty percent feel that Formula One is the pinnacle of motorsport, and that that's a bit sad that the forty percent of people watch it thinking there's a better piece of motorsport out there. But it's it's going to happen uh, as um, people feel that the um, the rules and the cars are all being bent around certain uh, certain teams doing well, um, or that certain teams doing well uh, and other teams are not allowed to uh, challenge that dominance. Uh, 56% think Formula 1 cars have been too easy to drive um, I think that's a misnomer I think people feel that way because there's a lot of communication I don't think that they're easy to drive um, I think the case is that um, when things go wrong in a Formula 1 car these days a lot less happens um, and so people think that because you don't see crashing and people being beached and all those bits and pieces anymore it's just easy um, or that because they're being told to manage the car it's easy Um I wouldn't want to be driving along at 200 kilometers an hour while somebody was telling me to think about three different things I had to manage on the on the steering wheel and look after my brakes and look after this and remember this and do this. I think it'd be quite scary in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think that's the way the sport should work, but it is at the moment, and I don't think that makes it easy. Uh, looking at what was important to Formula One fans, um, the top one, the top answer was Formula One should be. Uh, Formula 1 rules should be relaxed to allow greater diversity of cars and technology spot on Formula 1 fan you have that right um, however the sound of Formula 1 engines is important to me, you are wrong <laughs> this, is, this is not important to the sport, it's important to people but it's not important to the sport uh, and really I think if people should have looked at this opportunity to say what's better for the sport not what makes me go ooh that was loud um 
The power output of Formula Engines is important to me. Why is it important to you, you idiots? Um, it doesn't make any difference. A six and the um, six hundred odd BP engines that are running now probably make the cars go faster than the thousand BP engines of the uh, early eighties. The output of a of an engine has no business about really how fast it it can go. Um, everything else about the car pretty much determines that. Team running costs are too high and are not sustainable for the healthy future of Formula One. And I think 68% of people put this not because um, they feel there should be caps and all the other bits and pieces necessarily, um, because it doesn't really work if you want to allow greater diversity in car and technologies, because that costs money. I think what they're suggesting is that um, the costs are too high because the teams can't afford it, not because those shouldn't be the costs. There should be, uh, Formula One should allow teams to be able to run at the cost it takes to uh, compete in Formula One. Uh, and to do that, the prize money needs to be more evenly handed out and not all given to Ferrari. <laughs> um, going down and down, there were uh, some interesting ones that people didn't um, agree with. And one, again, I'm very happy that people didn't put down was Formula One will be better served by fewer teams running more cars. Yes. Great. Three car teams, not the way forward. What do we want to see change? There should be more than one tyre supplier allowed. Well, I think that's stupid. Nobody, everybody does seem to have forgotten that um, when we had a tyre war, what does that mean when you're trying to compete against another tyre manufacturer where you make your tyres be the best for the teams? What's best for the teams is that the uh, rubber doesn't run out. You can't have a tyre war and have uh, marginal tyres. So we'll just go back to where it was before. The tyre the, the that they're on doesn't really matter. We'll have hard and soft. There may be you know, um, some uh, time difference between the two. But in the end, what it'll be is that the, the soft will be made fast enough um, to give them a speed advantage over the harder tyres. But it will last all race. So you know, people will um, you know, pit to the hard tyres on the last lap. Uh, and there you go. Uh, 63th event say that fueling should be reintroduced you are sensible people if you have marginal tires and you have refueling you do actually have more options if you have a tire wall where the tires last all uh last all race then refueling isn't a good idea because then all the, all the overtaking is done in the pits but realistically that's what happens now with the tires uh with the undercut being the only viable strategy there are two options in formula one strategy wise and it's what tire you go on to realistically um, at the mandated pit stops because the pit stop window is the same for all of the teams pow there are no benefits from having a tyre war, there would be if the tyres maintain a marginal amount of um, life in them and refueling because then suddenly soft tyres on low fuel um, at the start of the race becomes viable as well as being on harder tyres on heavy fuel and and all the variances in between. You're listening to the Last Lap Podcast. Uh, team budget caps must be introduced and policed. Um, no, not going to happen. Um, Formula One needs to look at being able to reduce the costs in other ways uh, and also that the prize money is more equally distributed so that um, you don't need a budget cap because uh, teams have at least enough money to be able to compete reasonably. And the bigger teams can put more money in that's that's fine, but at least the other teams are getting enough money so that they, they don't just struggle to get to the races. They can get to the races and do research and design. Uh, 
Uh, points should be awarded for fast lap. No, don't be so silly. Um, teams can purchase and run customer cars. Only 44% of people agree with this. Um, I've been a proponent that customer cars are not a bad way if you don't allow people to buy a whole entire car. The introduction of DRS has improved racing. Only 40% of the people agree with that, and that seems silly because arguably since DRS has been introduced, there has been more overtaking in Formula 1. People don't like how it's done because it feels artificial. It doesn't necessarily mean that it hasn't improved racing. It's just the the reason why it's improved racing, people don't like. Uh, points should be awarded for qualifying. No, don't be so silly. Um, an additional third driver race should be introduced over the GP re- weekends. Only 20% of people agree with this. I think there needs to be more things across a weekend involving Formula 1 drivers other than the race, uh, but that's not the way to go. Uh, success ballast so you handicap winners don't be silly Uh, reverse grid should be introduced really really don't be so silly Uh, what do we want to see from the drivers to be open and honest with fans now um, a gentleman at Motorsport Magazine suggested that this is contradictory to Kimi Raikkonen being the um, favourite fan uh, driver or the drivers the favourite driver of the fans but it's not. What people want when they say to be open and honest with fans is that they don't want corporate shills. They don't want people who tow the team line. They want them to speak their mind when they're asked a question. Um, Kimmy speaks his mind when he answers a question all the time. He just says it in three words because that's his attitude. But when you have a situation like Multi 21, what they don't want to see is somebody saying, you know, and Mark was very candid to an extent but really what they want him to say is um my teammate ignored um ignored an order and overtook me whilst i was not racing him um and that's what happened this guy's and bleep um that's what we want to see you know when lewis and nico crash in spa we want to hear exactly what they both think we don't want them to come out in the end and say uh, we've had an internal discussion and that's uh, the matter done with we want to know what they say um, help push forward safety in F1 um, I do agree with the guy from Motorsport on this and I think that that's a bit of a hangover from Jackie Stewart being a bit of a lead on that um, it isn't the Formula 1 driver's job to do that uh, but I think they can play an active role in it and it would be nice to see I think um, Formula 1 drivers being vocal about safety in Formula 1 um, and it being an important part of their job to talk about the aspects of safety in F1 and how Racing and driving in general can be made safe. Uh, have active role in formulating and implementing regulation sports and change in F1. Well, that's as bad as the teams doing it because the drivers will only do things that benefit them in their car. So the Mercedes drivers will take the Mercedes line, blah, blah, blah. I think there are some things in which you do need to have a driver's opinion, but you would be better off talking to recently ex-drivers not affiliated with a team and finding out their opinions first. Uh, promote Formula 1 and enhance its worldwide image and reputation. Well, duh. Um, actually work to bring fans close to Formula 1 and I think that's true um, the F1 Twitter feeds etc etc um, do not actively engage fans in a way that they could do um, and most of those form- most of those Twitters have some involvement of the uh, corporate entities behind you know who they drive for but some of them don't, and I think there's got to be, um, you know, Nick Rosberg, I think, is probably one of the better ones for doing it in that he tends to do lots of things that require interactivity, and he does um, a video message after the races that he puts on Twitter. And 
by God, does that guy get a lot of abuse on Twitter when he does those. But isn't it, you know, if we're talking about being open and honest, it's his vlog. It's him talking about it in his way. Great. More of that. More of hashtag ask Fernando a question, you know, um, or I will be online here for uh, an hour um, taking questions on a Megal and uh, or a Meagle or whatever or chat roulette or something like that. Um, <laughs> force your way through the picture through the video streams of people masturbating uh, until you find Fernando Alonso, and I will give you two minutes of a uh, face to face time where we can have a chat. And that's the end of the survey. What I get from that is that fans want something. The fans don't necessarily know really what they want to do to change it. And that's fair enough because we're fans. We enjoy the sport. It really shouldn't be us telling Formula One what it needs to do to be better. We should be able to say, we're not enjoying Formula One right now. Sort sort yourselves out, guys. And the teams and the FIA and Bernie should be able to look at that and go, you know what? We're alienating our core viewership here. Maybe we shouldn't work on things in the way that we are. Maybe we shouldn't... um, be so dismissive of fans or ignore them or not interact with them um, in the way that they currently do now and you know what kind of sport can exist that treats its fans as you know just ah don't worry they'll turn up whatever you know um, football has a bad reputation for that ticket price is really high um, you know uh, tickets for major events going out to sponsors and stuff like that before the fans get a chance, you know, half empty stadiums because they've comped out 50% of the seats to McDonald's and Budweiser. Uh, and only, you know, half of those tickets ever got taken up on uh, when there was people clamoring to get in. Uh, and formula one, I think has a danger of being that um, in that it, it'll end up being Bernie's rich friends club. Um, oh, and here's some seats for the proles, you know, that that's how it feels to some extent, Bernie's more interested in seeing, um, VIPs on the gridwalk than uh, seeing bums in seats, despite the fact that realistically, um, you know, it, it it's killing racing in the places where it needs to be kept alive and can be kept alive because the interest is actually there. Um, but what he does is is make it too expensive. It makes it too expensive for the race uh, venues. Uh, they have to put, charge ridiculous amounts for people to get in, and then people go, "Well, I'm not turning up." I can watch it on TV for, you know, less than that. I can pay for Sky for um, three months for the price it would cost to get me into one Formula One race. So I could watch three races for the price of one. (laughs) You know, you're going to have to be dedicated to stick with that. And, you know, that Bernie doesn't appear to be um, conscious of this and that he just keeps on saying, well, if they can't afford it, they can't have the race. Don't be such a little troll. Um, come out and say, you know, maybe we're not doing this right. If if Germany is struggling when we've got Sebastian Vettel, um, you know, up there in a Ferrari, a German driver in a Ferrari, you know, it's a pretty good combination. Um, it generally gets people interested from that country. If they're not turning up, then it's probably not because that they don't like, you know, oh, look, a German team is winning all of these titles. There's quite a lot to keep German people interested. It's that... When you compare the price of Formula One to the price of their football matches, it's extortionate. Um, 
And it's just another case of Formula One shooting itself in the foot because it doesn't seem to care to work out what's important to the fans who realistically are the only reason that the sport exists. Either that or don't sell tickets to the events uh, and let people pay millions of pounds to drive around on a private track day with their mates drinking champagne. Who cares then? Not a problem. <laughs> so on that terribly cynical note, uh, let's end the podcast for this week. Uh, thank you very much for bearing with me. I've managed to do about an hour and a half or, or so, which I didn't think I was going to be able to do. My voice is just about to give out. Um, <laughs> so it's probably a good time to wrap up now. Um, one thing before we leave. Um, as of now, literally today, um, on the um, UK podcast directory, um run by our good friends, the UK podcasters, uh, you can now vote for us uh, to win an award. As, uh, we'll either be uh, one of the, the best podcast in the UK, probably not, um, but certainly probably the best uh, sports cast on the UK podcasters uh, directory, which would be an amazing result for us. Um, like I say, we're, we're just two little guys in, in bedrooms chatting to you about Formula One. Um, if you could find time to um, go to the website, um, search for the last lap and then press the big red button and remote. All you've got to do is put in uh, like your email address or your Facebook account. Uh, it will send you an email. You reply to that and then that basically registers your vote for us. It doesn't stick you on a mailing list or anything like that. So you're um, completely free to to do that. Um, I will just... Oh, it's not happening fast enough. Come on. Um, oh, yeah. So you go to uh, HTTP go on forward slash forward slash ukpodcasters.com forward slash directory uh, and then search for the last lap podcast um, or just the last lap will do. Press the big roll button, end your details. Whilst you're there, if you feel like leaving us a little review, that would be muchos apreciado. Um, that's probably said something really offensive in Spanish, but there you go. Um, because anything like that just helps people find the podcast, gets them uh, listening and increases the you know the number of viewers that, that we get which helps us and motivates us to keep bringing you um, hopefully what you really enjoy, which is great Formula One banter every week. You can download that banter, as always, from um, our website, which... Um... <laughs> I always get this wrong. No, it's lastlappodcast.co.uk. I keep on sticking in the at the front of it, and I don't mean to. So that's www.lastlappodcast.co.uk. All our episodes um, appear there first before they appear on iTunes, Twitter, or Facebook. Um, so it's always the place to get it at first. You can subscribe to the RSS feed. Um, but as I said, we are available on iTunes. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, you can subscribe to us on TuneIn as well uh, for your Android devices. It's always a good way of uh, capturing the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at LastLapPodcast um, or find us on Facebook. Um, just search for The Last Lap Podcast. Click the link uh, and like the page uh, and then you can chat to us. We do a lot of interaction through Facebook and Twitter so it's well worth following us, following our tweets, replying to us. Uh, we pretty much reply to everything that gets that gets uh, sent to us. So, you know, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Uh, and with that, that takes us to the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for bearing with us this week. Uh, we'll be back to normal. Sean will be back with us after Silverstone. Uh, and on that note, thanks for listening. See you.